We have no future plans, by the way, to ever meet in the Marriott again, and we're excited about that, but we're also very grateful. Um, If you get some time, please take a few moments before you leave today to thank the Marriott staff that you see. There are so many staff members who have been here the entire time we have been meeting here together. Um, I I got to see and say goodbye to to Linda. Everybody knows Linda. I don't know if she's in the back somewhere listening right now, but um, if she is, I I hope she hears us. Okay, she's in the kitchen back there apparently. So um, she often will have kitchen duty the same time we meet on purpose and get to listen to our messages. There are so many people who have served us so well here in the Marriott, and there she is. Hey, Linda, come on out. Let's say thanks to you. Come on out, come on out, come on out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate it. And um, really, thank you to all the Marriott staff. If you'll pass on our gratitude to everybody, everybody from the concierge, the front desk, and all the staff here, the cleaning, they have really made our stay really wonderful. And we've had a great relationship with Marriott where you have a lot of respect and affection for you all. Um, Oh, thank you very much. I wanted to thank you as well um, for being with us, for serving us, for caring for our church. Um, And this is our last Sunday. You're welcome to, to come with us if you ever get a Sunday off. We'd love to have you there with us too. So thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate that. Um, Church, if you get a moment, I encourage you to say thank you to the different staff you see around here. Um, The Marriott really has been wonderful to us. Great hosts of an easy relationship, easy to work with. Um, They've also given us great rates, which is nice. And um, we've appreciated them all along. So I couldn't imagine a better relationship with a hotel we're renting. So they've made it easy. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23, where we continue on in our series in 1 Samuel. This is 1 Samuel 23, a passage where David is on the run, and uh, David's kind of still going from place to place, hiding from King Saul. He's still trying to figure out when and where he's going to live. He's, things are uncertain for him. Things are unstable for him. Things are a little bit dangerous and treacherous for him. Turn now to 1 Samuel 23. We're going to read the entire chapter together. This is God's holy inspired word. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to Keilah, to David to Keilah, he come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. 
But David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul comes, seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horus on the hill of Hakalah, which is the south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he's very cunning." See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I'll go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain? And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Angedi. Let's pray. God, thank you for accounts like this that reveal your character, your nature, your care. God, I pray that you would actually speak to us of your care this morning, that we would see how you cared for David, and God, I pray that we would also see that you continue to care for your servants in similar ways. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every person here with your specific personal and intentional care. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I remember when a few years ago I took my children to a place called Endless Caverns in Virginia. Um, I don't know if they really have found the end or not, but it's a dramatic name. And they took us on a tour down in the caverns, and we kind of wound down through there. And it was a long tour, and we get down to this really deep part in the, in the caverns where they say that there's no way that any light can come in. And then they have this kind of dramatic moment where they turn off all the lights on you. <laughs> 
and you're standing in this dark cavern and you can't see a thing. And they tell you, okay, put your hand in front of your face. And so you have your hand right in front of your face and you can't even see an outline of your hand. You can't see anything. It's the blackest of black. It's the darkest of dark. And it's absolutely disconcerting. It's the darkest I've ever experienced, really. I've never experienced a room that dark. You can always see a crack somewhere or some kind of light coming out. But it was so dark there that all my kids, as soon as they cut the lights off, they immediately reach out and grab onto us. And they were like, oh my gosh, you know. And dad, and then it lasted for a little too long. You know, the tour guy was having a little too much fun. And and everybody's just in the back of their minds thinking, well, I hope they didn't just sneak off on us. (laughs) It's going to be hard to find that switch. You know, everybody's getting ready to pull their phones out of their back pockets. And um, and then, you know, a couple of my kids, and they kind of said, "Um, can you make them turn the lights back on again? (laughs) And so finally they turned the lights back on. And everybody kind of chuckled when they overheard my kids saying that. And But everybody could kind of relate. Everybody could relate because everybody was, was really hoping that the tour guide hadn't left and the lights really would come back on, that they'd really be able to assure. see. But they, they, they wanted assurance. They wanted assurance they'd be able to see. They wanted assurance they'd be able to understand and know how to get out of there. And it's very understandable in situations like that. We have a longing for assurance when we don't understand, when we don't see, when we can't figure things out, when things seem dark. David was in a similar situation. Things seemed dark. He needed assurance. He needed, he needed help. He needed to figure out how to get out of the situation he was in. He, did, he needed guidance. He needed clarity. I think we can relate to that, can't we? You ever have a time in your life when things seem a little unclear? When things seem a little dark? When things seem like, I, I don't know what God is doing. I can't see my hand in front of my face. I don't know where I'm going. What is coming next? And, and, and you have that desire for assurance in your life. Uh, maybe that's assurance that you're going to marry the right person. Or maybe it's assurance you're going to the right school. Or assurance that your kids will be okay. Or that things will work out in your relationship or your job or whatever it might be. There are times when we, when we have that very human, very understandable desire to understand and see and have assurance. Well, David really is no different here in this account He's surrounded by some dark times. Boy, I was just thinking um, this morning, we're, we, we really are in a similar place in, in some, some regards. And in this world, we, we seem to be at times very different than the society around us. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus seem to be surrounded by people who are crazy at times, right? The, the world has kind of gone mad Around us, people are consumed with rampant materialism, racism, and classism, and overly sensitivism, whatever you want to call that. They're, they're, they're just running rampant all at once, all at the same time. Same time, politics and government are going crazy. We witnessed this weekend in town here. We seem to be at the height of name-calling, down the depths of a seeming lack of rational thoughts. People seem to be mean senseless and selfish, dark ideas seem to surround us. But you know, God has assurance for us. God has assurance for each and every person who's a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I believe what we're going to see in this passage, the, the main idea that we're going to see is that we can receive God's assurance of God's care. We receive assurance of God's care through his, through his priest, through his people, and through his provision. And so um, we're going to see that that David, like David, received God's care through God's priest, through Abiathar. And David receives God's care through one of his followers, Jonathan. And then he receives God's care through this 
unexpected provision of the Philistines coming along just when he's about to get captured. Um, God was personally showing David that he cared for him. And I think this passage wasn't just written for David, wasn't just written for the Israelites, it's written for us to, to look and see, how does God work? How does God care for his people? How does God give his people, his followers, assurance? And he gives his followers assurance of his care through his priest, through his people, and through his provision. This passage opens up, opens up and David, he's still on the run. He's hiding out in the hill country. We don't know exactly where he was. And for some reason, the people come to him. They treat him like a king. He is the anointed king, but he's not yet doesn't yet have the role of a king. And yet people come to him and they report to him, hey, the Philistines have attacked the town of Keilah. And they expect him to do something about it. We wonder where Saul was. We're not sure exactly what Saul was up to. Why was Saul not defending the people of Keilah? But David's encountering this problem. The problem is the people of Keilah might sound minor. The Philistines were coming against the town, attacking the town. Just as the time of harvest had come, they would harvest the grain. They would go to the threshing floors to separate out the wheat from the chaff. And then just when they had their prized possession, the grain to store up for the wintertime, the Philistines would come in and steal it. So all their work, all their labor for months and months just was stolen from them. That was pretty serious in an agrarian society. That meant they wouldn't eat. Not only would they not eat then, they wouldn't eat for the wintertime either. And it was, they faced some dire situation here. And so they came to him as, you know, as the ultimate lunchroom bullies. Uh, they wouldn't have any food. It was a very serious situation. And so David, they come to him, and he's, he's acting like a leader. He actually considers their request, which is kind of interesting to think about. You see, David was in hiding, but he thinks about, wait a minute, these people are in trouble. I should I go and help them? He automatically considers he should use his might and his resources for the good of those who are helpless and being harassed. And it's a good example for us as believers, as Christians, we can think, wait a minute, do we have the ability to go and help other people who are helpless and harassed? Can we do something about this situation? Whether or not we, we have the role, we have that, that responsibility, inherently we have a responsibility because who we are. But David here, he's already in trouble, he's already in hiding, and he knows if he goes to the aid of the people of Keilah that it could actually mean his downfall. It could mean he would get betrayed. They might come against him, but also the Philistines were there, so he's now potentially facing an enemy on two fronts. He needs assurance that this would be God, that God is leading him to do this. He needs God's clear word, his clear direction. His men actually object. If you look down on the story, they they object, they recognize, they say, hey, David, we're, we're pretty scared here in Judah where your tribe, you know, is dominant. We're pretty scared here hiding in these caves. But if we kind of go out in the open and we fight against the Philistines, now we got the Philistines to contend with. And then Saul, he'll, he'll know where we're at. But what does David do? He goes to the place where assurance is found. He goes to the, the wisest place. He turns to God. And he says, God, what, what should I do? You know, if, if I, sh- should I go? Should I go and, and fight for them? Should I go and deliver them? And he hears from the Lord. And the Lord says, go down to Keilah, for I'll give the Philistines into your hands. So David got clear direction and the assurance that he needed that God was in this. And so David, he goes and he delivers the people, the inhabitants of Keilah. And so you think, well, that means going to be great now. These, these people are going to be supportive. They're, they're from Judah. They're going to be supportive. They're going to be kind to him. He's rescued them. He's saved them. He's delivered them, Right? But then 
Saul finds out he's there, and Saul thinks, okay, I've got him finally. I've got him just where I want him. He's in a, in a city with walls and bars, and he's trapped, and I know what I'll do. I'll rally the people, and I'll go, and I'll assault the city. Now, that implications for the people of Keilah. They were probably afraid. They probably heard of that as well. It implications for them. They, they remembered probably what happened to the city of Nob. The city of Nob, Saul wiped out all the inhabitants of. So maybe they're thinking of that. But David hears about this plot for Saul to come and get him. And so he inquires of God. But, but look in verse 6 here. Look in verse 6. It, it, it seems to be a throwaway verse. It seems, it is, you know, what in the world is this verse doing here? But really, verse 6 is at the center of this, verses 1 through 13. It's right in the middle. And there's this structure that kind of points to it. See, there's a problem in Keilah, there's, and he has two questions. God, will should I go down? And then he has an answer from the Lord. And then you have Abiathar with an ephod. And then after that, you have another problem where Keilah is about to be assaulted by Saul. And David inquires the Lord, and then he has an answer. And so the structure is actually pointing to verse 6 in the first 13 verses. And it explains really how David is hearing from God. And it reminds us, look down in your Bibles, it says, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Why did the the author of this this book put that there? He put that there so he would explain, okay, this is really the center of David's inquiries before and afterwards. This is central. Abiathar is key to understanding this. You see, Abiathar has an ephod, and an ephod was a priestly garment that was used along with something called an urim and thummim, and we don't know exactly what those were, but they were these stones that were kept in the ephod, which was like a linen vest that the priests would use, and they would inquire of God on behalf of his people. It was the way that, that God mediated his word through his priest to his people. And so, really, verse 6 is key to the first 13 verses. The presence of Abiathar in the ephod was crucial to David. It was the means by which David found assurance. He found his assurance through God's priest, and he heard God's word, and God's word was mediated to him. And Abiathar here acts as a mediator of God's will, and David heard the Lord through him, and, and, and it made all the difference for him to have a priest of the Lord. Now, that's important to, to note as well. Saul, he killed all the other priests, and he sent them away. He sent all, all of the priestly caste was gone, except the Abiathar. But Saul doesn't have God's guidance, but David does. He has the priest to mediate God's guidance, his direction, his will, his word, really. And David hears the Lord through him. Now David knows for certain whether the actions he could take were wise or not and whether what he wanted to do was pleasing to God or not. Saul, he had to guess at God's will. Saul presumed upon God's will. The reason he found out where David was because he felt, well, maybe God's given him to my hands. Well, Saul was dead wrong. He was wrongly interpreting God's will. You see, he needed a priest. He needed someone to interpret God's will for him, God's word for him, to mediate that for him. And, And David had that. David had that assurance from God through his priest. Saul assumed he could harm God's anointed, and he calls people to go to war, besiege him, and David finds out. And the first thing David does, look in verses 7 to 13, the first thing he does is he turns to, to God. As people say, you know, wait a minute, something's, somebody, Saul's going to come up and assault the city. And so David, same thing he did before, when his men objected to him going and fighting against the Philistines, he turns to God for help, for assurance. Just like my kids turned to me, the first thing they did when the lights went off, they kind of grabbed me. 
You know, when, when you're confused, when you find your circumstances disconcerting, when you find people around you seem to be against you, when things seem to be at best confusing or dark, when people might have deserted you, when you don't feel like you have support, when you don't feel like God cares about you, where do you turn? Where do you turn? Well, David turns to Abiathar and he says, bring the ephod to me so I can discern God's will. So Abiathar brings the ephod. He's acting as the bearer of God's revelation. David approaches God humbly. He doesn't presume upon God. He doesn't assume he knows perfectly, discerns on his own. That's a great example for us. How does David approach God? He, He approaches God humbly, not assuming he understands, not assuming he discerns. Even though he has a good idea of what man's planning, he still says, God, is this... You know, I hear the Saul's going to come down. Is he really going to come down? And, 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 and if, if he does come down with the people, will the people of Keilah give, him up to, give me up to them? You know, he's probably thinking, hey, you know, wait a minute, I saved these guys. That, you know, surely they won't give him up, give me up to them. And, and so God answers him, and he says, yeah, Saul will come down. But it's almost like David's wondering, wait a minute, did you hear me on that one? I asked two questions. I got one answer. And so then, so David asks again, and he says, you know, okay, God will... Will, will he come down? Will they surrender me? Will, my, will surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? This time God answers the question directly through Abiathar and says, they will surrender you. And then David, he didn't spend a lot of time after that. After he received God's assurance through his priest and through his priest mediating his word and revealing really God's will to him, David immediately responded. He immediately responded. And it says that they all departed. You know, they went away. It wasn't a clean and orderly departure. They, they kind of hightailed out of there. Went, it says wherever they could go, they got out of there. And just in time, too, as soon as Saul finds out, he abandons his, his expedition there. He gave up pursuing David when he was certain that he didn't have the better odds. And really, you see that Abiathar's presence and the, really the presence of the ephod and, and Abiathar mediating God's word, mediating his revelation, mediating God's will, he made all the difference. David had access to the priest through, I mean, access to God through the priest and he was kept safe. You know, he had a priest right beside him. Maybe you're thinking, boy, that must have been nice, right? Having a priest who could tell you exactly what God's will is. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great to have Abiathar? Hey, Abiathar, should I go to this school? Yes, you should go to that school. And you know, Abiathar, should I marry this woman? No, you should not marry that woman, you know, or, or that guy. I mean, I'm, I'm, so what, should have used a guy illustration. It's more believable. Um, so, because face it, right? I mean, more often than not, guys are the ones that women should not marry. But uh, anyway, so... Um, so, you know, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of will revealed to us? Wouldn't it be great to have a priest like that? And you think, well, we don't have that anymore, right? But, but God does give us his assurance still, and he does give us assurance still through his priest. But it's a better priest than Abiathar. It's a, a superior priest. Look in Hebrews 4.14. We have this for in your overheads. Hebrews explains... And we need a greater priest than the kind of priest in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 4.14, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest, a high priest who is greater than any other high priest. He's passed through the heavens. 
What does that mean? He knows God's will implicitly. He came from God, and he's passed through the heavens. says, Jesus, he's the son of God. Since we have that kind of priest, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are in a place like David was in, you know, you wish for a priest, but where do you turn? The encouragement that God wants us to have today is that you can have the assurance that God gives that's greater than the assurance of Abiathar and an ephod and whatever those stones were. It's the assurance that God has sent his own son who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, the exact revelation of God's word, the exact revelation of God's will. And so we have really Jesus' word still speaking to us today, perfectly explaining God's will. Now, he doesn't tell you exactly who you're supposed to marry, but he does give us guidance in, in the form of giving us scriptural principles, the kind of man or woman we should marry, the kind of um, desires that are pleasing to God so that we know, is it pleasing to God that I would go and pursue this kind of discipline and do this kind of work? And you can find that by saying, okay, well, generally, yes, I see that this is pleasing to the Lord. And you can find that assurance constantly and continually and always. And that assurance is actually mediated to us. It, in Hebrews it says, we, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. So let's hold fast our confession. When things around you are dark, when you're not sure, when you're fearful, when you're afraid, remember you have the assurance of God's priest mediating God's presence to you. And because of that, it makes really all the difference. Hebrews 7 goes on to talk about this great high priest. It says, therefore, he is able to save, what's the next word? It says, completely. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You have a kind of priest who mediates God's perfect presence, who demonstrates what it looks like to follow God, to live for God, who, who actually gives us clarity of God's word, who reveals God's word to us, who sends a helper to us, and then always lives to intercede for us. We can have assurance because of God's high priest. Well, look down at verse 15. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. He was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and maybe he's up on a hill looking down, and he sees Saul comes. And this time, though, David, as he saw him, he Saul couldn't find David. So the funny thing, though, in verse 16, it tells us Jonathan, Saul's son, somehow finds David and knows where he's at and goes to seek him. And then look what it says he does. It says, and he strengthened his hand in God. And what, really what we're going to see these, these next 15, 16, 17, 18, these next four verses is God's care for David through the encouragement of Jonathan. He cares for David through the encouragement of Jonathan and how that applies to us when we look and see how did God care for people in the Old Testament? God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, he continues to care for us through the encouragement of God's people. And so we have assurance of God's care through the encouragement of God's people. We need the encouragement of 
other people to understand and be assured of God's care. And God's given us the church. He's given us fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, to be a means of assuring us of God's personal care. And if you've received encouragement, you need to, to not just look at it as, oh, somebody's being nice to me. No, if they're encouraging me to be strong in God, that's actually a means of God's personal care. That person, God has had that person find me out. Have you ever had those moments where you've you just thought of somebody, somebody's popped into your head, you haven't thought of them in years, maybe you haven't seen a friend in years, and you call them up and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I was thinking about you, I was praying for you, and they say, oh my goodness, the time you couldn't have been more perfect. That's happened a lot in this church here. I've, you know, I, where I, somebody thinks of another person, they call them up, or they just say, hey, I just felt like I was supposed to, you know, call you up and, and care for you. So you know what, I, just had, I had a cruddy day, and I needed to know that somebody cared. I needed to know that God cared about me. And that's actually God's personal care. Don't take that for granted. We, we need the encouragement of somebody who's on our side. There's a, an illustration of that in um, our nation's capital. There's a statue of Ulysses S. Grant. He was uh, a famous general for the Union in, in the Civil War. And, and he really was credited with really the military victory of the Union and there's this big statue of him on a horse just off the reflecting pool on the Capitol, and it's a very prominent location, and you can see it, and, and it's, it's a really kind of noble picture of, of Grant, this military hero. And then, I guess about 12, well, more, probably more than that by now, probably about 20 blocks away in an obscure area of D.C. is another statue of another guy on a horse, and um, the guy is, and his name is uh, Major General John Rawlins. And Rawlins, uh, no relation to me, by the way, no G in his name. Um, he was uh, at that time very famous because he was the chief of staff for Ulysses S. Grant. And why it's important is because Grant had a lot of weaknesses. He had a lot of shortcomings, like we all do. But one of Grant's biggest weaknesses was that he was uh, a terrible alcoholic. Most people didn't know that because John Rawlins helped keep him sober. Um, Rawlins, uh, Grant credited later, was he was the reason why he could get up in the saddle sober most of the time. Rawlins made Grant pledge to not drink when he was going on campaigns. And, to, and, he, and when he did drink, he, he kept him from drinking too much. And he was always there encouraging Grant to stay strong. He, meant, he was really the man behind the scenes who strengthened Grant, and without Rawlins' constant encouragement and care, Grant would never have made it. And it really, it really proves out the, the verse in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, David's son, wrote, and it says, two are better than one, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Jonathan was a huge means of encouragement to David. Not only has he been a means of encouragement to David several other strategic times, right now I think is a very strategic time for David. David's on the run again. He's just been betrayed by the very people he saved. Sound familiar by any means? Anybody else you can think of as would be betrayed by the very people he came to save? David, he's here betrayed. He just saved the people of Keilah. He delivered them from their enemy. He got back not only their food, but he got back the Philistines' oxen, and the implication is he probably gave it to them after he took some for his men's food, and, and yet they turn him over, or they're going to turn him over. 
And then we see that what's going to happen is he's going to experience more opposition from his very own tribesmen. The people of Ziph were the people of Judah, his own tribe. And he's about to experience more discouragement, more betrayal. This time it's not understandable. They just kind of offer him up. And, and so sandwiched in, the, sandwiched in the middle of that, really, between these, these dark places, this, the, the betrayal of the people of Keilah and then the pending betrayal of Ziph, God sends Jonathan along to encourage him. Once heard somebody explain it that it's kind of like, you know, Jonathan's that cream filling between two Oreo cookies, you know, between... <laughs> He, he makes it much better. He makes it bearable. Um, or maybe you like those cookies and not the cream. But um, Somehow Jonathan finds David. And the author writes that he strengthened his hand. Didn't just say he made him say, David, you're a great warrior. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. David, that's all right. I'm for you and everything's all right. He, he, well, he, he does say that he's for him, but he says he strengthened his hand. And there's two really important words there, in God. He strengthens his hand in God. What an encouragement Jonathan was to David. And the content of his encouragement was to strengthen his hand in God. He wasn't just trying to make David feel good. He was, he was seeking to make David strong in the Lord. And I was thinking about that with people here, with your fellow believers, with people in church, your small group. Maybe people not in your small group, people not like you. They, we all need to have our hands strengthened in God. It's nice when somebody compliments us, but we really can write that off. But when somebody points us to an anchor, something we can hold, hold securely and know is not going to fail us. When, you, when, the, when the winds are blowing all around you and your little ship is being tossed in the waves, when somebody throws you an anchor that's tied to a rock and you attach that to your boat, you know that you're probably going to get through that storm. That's, that's, that's what Jonathan's encouragement is like. That's what the encouragement of a fellow believer who points you to God and encourages you, strengthens your hand, and God is like. It's, it's like an anchor on a rock. Somebody tells you, hey, do you know, right now, I know you're feeling so confused that you don't even know how to pray. Let me encourage you. Do you know Romans? It says in Romans 8 that when you don't even know how to pray like you ought to, and by the way, I know you know you ought to, but when you don't know how to pray like you ought to, it says the Holy Spirit, he prays for us with groanings too deep for words, and he perfectly knows how to pray for us because he knows the will of God the Father, and he knows your heart, what you really need, and he prays for you perfectly to match those two things up. That's encouragement, right? That strengthens your hand in God. Wait a minute. I don't even know how to pray right now. I'm so confused. But the Holy Spirit who knows exactly what I need and he knows the exact solution that's needed because he knows the will of God and he prays for those things. He intercedes for me. Maybe it would strengthen your hand in God when someone else tells you, well, but you know a little further on in that passage in Romans it says that, you know, hey, if God is for you, he can be against you. Right now, maybe your, your husband or your wife seems against you or your X, or maybe the people in your school seem against you, or maybe your boss seems against you, your coworkers seem against you, maybe you got fired. You know when it says that if God is for you, who can be against you, right? Who's bigger than God is the implication there. If he didn't spare his own son but freely gave up Jesus for us all, won't he also with him give you everything else that you need because everything else is lesser is the implication? That's encouraging somebody's hand in God. 
Maybe somebody would come to you and continue to encourage you and say something like, well, you know what? Not only that, this is a Trinitarian thing. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. You're confused and God's for you. He's not against you. And if he already gave the most precious thing, his son, he's surely he's gonna not spare anything else that's, that's dear, that you need, that you truly need. And not only that, did you know that no matter what happens to you, you might feel naked right now and stripped bare. You might feel exposed, like everybody's found out how bad you really are, how shameful you really are. You have a sense of nakedness. Or maybe you're, you're, you feel impending peril, or you feel like you're going to be financially destitute, or you don't know what's coming next. None of, none of those things, did you know that none of those things can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Neither height, no matter how big your problem is, no matter how tall it is, no matter how low your problem is, how, you know how low the valley is? Nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord, because in him we're conquerors, even though we don't feel like we're conquering, and we feel like we're being slaughtered all the day long. That's what it means to encourage someone's hand, to strengthen their hand in God, right? And what an encouragement that is to a fellow believer, and what an example that Jonathan is. He, he strengthens his hand in God. He was an encourager. He was the best kind of friend. Not only strengthened David's hand in the Lord, the next verse says he also told him not to fear. He says, don't fear. He reminds him of a promise that God had made to David. Now, he says, don't fear. It's going to be okay. He says, don't, don't, don't forget, you're going to be king over Israel, no matter what it looks like right now. You're going to be king. God already said that. God promised you'd be king. You have nothing to be afraid of. You're not yet king, so clearly this isn't going to kill you. Clearly my father's not going to find you and kill you because God promised you'd be king. That hasn't come about yet. Don't forget God's promises. That's what it looks like for us to point people, to strengthen people's hand in God, is to, to point them back to God's promises. Don't forget what's really objectively true. Don't forget that First Peter, it says that he will keep you faithful to the end. He says, Saul knows, my dad knows you're going to be king. And then they make a covenant with each other before the Lord. Boy, that's a picture of an encouraging friend. Now as he points me to God, he says, I'm, I'm here with you. And no matter what happens, I'm, I'm going to be for you through thick and through thin. And that's a picture, really, of the kind of relationships we're called to in the church. And that requires sacrifice, though, doesn't it? It requires effort. It requires we may not have to sneak through the battle lines to go to our friend. But what a great example, and what a means of encouragement it is to David, what a means of encouragement it is to, to us when we have friends like that and when we are friends like that. It says, when Jonathan left, you know, David here, he's, he's in, he leaves encouraged in the Lord they didn't know this was the last time they'd see each other, though. It's kind of a sad parting. We know if, you, if you've read along in Samuel that this is the last time they'll see each other. The next time that David hears of Jonathan really is in Jonathan's death. Got me thinking, you know, I wonder how we leave people. When we, when we go to people, when we encourage them, do, are we aware that we, we, it might be the last time we see that person? We never know. God doesn't promise us you know, tomorrow necessarily. We don't know when we'll die. But what a great means of encouragement we can be in any given moment or we purpose to say, you know what, I want to leave people encouraged. And how do you leave people? People more encouraged in God because of you? Maybe, you, you know, are you more encouraged by others in God? If you've been encouraged, don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted that, oh, that's just so-and-so being nice, or maybe that's their job because they're my small group leader, or maybe it's my pastor, or you know what, they're just a Christian, they kind of have to be nice to me. No, you should hear that as God's personal, intentional assurance of his care for you. Know that God is standing beside you and saying, relax, it's gonna be okay, the lights are gonna come on again. 
I love you. Well, the, the final thing we see in this account in, in verses 19 to 29, actually in verse 14 as well, in verses 19 to 29, is we see assurance of God's care through ordinary and unexpected provision. Verse 19 tells us that though the Ziphites, the Ziphites there, they weren't faithful like Jonathan. They were, they were, they were David's own kinsmen. Jonathan was Saul's son, his, his so-called the son of his enemy, and yet the Ziphites, who were supposed to be David's kinsmen, they weren't faithful. And his own tribes and the people of Ziph, they weren't loyal. They acted treacherously against David. I don't know why, but they offered up David to Saul on their own initiative. Maybe they want to get Saul's favor. They're seeking their own protection. Or maybe they want a government jobs, whatever. But they gave him up and they told Saul exactly where he was, down the very specific hill that he was hiding out on, just south of Jeshimon on such and such a hill. Now, they were specific, and then they make an appeal. They don't only just tell them where it's at. They say, hey, by the way, come and do whatever you want, meaning we're going to give you carte blanche. When you come here, we're not only going to tell you where he's at, we're going to help you, and you can do whatever you want, which that's, that's a lot coming from the tribe of the opposition king to offer him up like that so treacherously, kind of like Judas delivering up Jesus. They're, they'd be glad to surrender David into Saul's hands, and they reiterate it if they... That they're accepting Saul as their king and not David by saying that? And Saul, he acts religious again. And make sure you remember that, boy, just because somebody acts religious doesn't mean they love God. And he gives them a blessing. But here's a guy who's just killed all the priests of the Lord. He has no respect for God or the things of God or God's means to come to him. And, and yet he says, you know, may you be blessed by the Lord for you've had compassion on me. He's a self-pitying hypocrite here. You know, he's, he's already said, my own son made a covenant with David, but you, you know, David's tribesmen, you've had compassion on me. But then he's, he still lacks confidence, doesn't he? They told him exactly what hill he's on. He's like, that's really good. Now, maybe you be blessed. But, but, but by the way, before I come, make exactly sure you know really where he's at, everywhere he is, and go spy him out, and everywhere he hides, and figure out all the options. And then when you figure out all the options, come and tell me, and then I'll come to you, and then it'll look like I found him amidst all the thousands. <laughs> yeah. Sure you did, Saul. Found him in all the thousands when we told you exactly where he was, where he could go, all his hideouts and all his potential places. Gee, I found him among the thousands of Judah. It just shows you that, that Saul is, is pretty pathetic and he doesn't have God's guidance. And then if you look down here, it says the men of Ziph, they agreed to Saul's plan. They went ahead to Saul to scout things out and they found that David was exactly where they thought. And so Saul and his men, they, they saddle up and they go to get David. And, and then you have this really dramatic moment in Scripture. And you're meant to see it dramatically. You, you, you ever read those, or those stories in the Civil War where, you know, the, the, um, one army was coming around one side of Lookout Mountain in the Appalachians. And another army is coming down the road down the other side. And they're about to meet up and they don't even know it. That's the, that's the kind of story you have here. It's the kind of account you have here. Saul is hot on David's heels, he's pursuing him. And he's on one side of a mountain. Now the mountain there, it's just, a, it's a rock outcrop. And so David's men are on one side and Saul and 3,000 men on the other side. David's got about 600 men on one side, 3,000 on the other. That's a pretty big outnumbered odds there. And so look, look down your Bibles. It says, let me see here. 
Saul on one side of the mountain, verse 26, David has been on the other side, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and you're meant to have this building drama, and it says Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. They're just about to get them. They're just about to round the bend of this rock, and then look what happens. It says in verse 27, a messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have been raided against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David. I wonder if he would have done that if he knew just how close he was. He returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape or the Rock of Division in, in the original language. David went up from there, lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The tension had been building. David was just about to be captured. And it must have been a serious incursion of the Philistines because he hadn't responded to the Philistines in Keilah. It must have been after his Philistines were probably attacking his own lands of Benjamin. And it would seem that, well, maybe just the geography was the reason why David was rescued, but we kind of know better here. See, when we have these details, this building tension, it's, it's God's, God's way of showing us that, it, you know, you, you kind of chuckle like, he almost had him. But then you realize, no, 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 God, he's sovereignly working, he's providentially working, he's, he's providing a means of escape to the most unlikely, unexpected people, the Philistines, God raises up the Philistines against, against the Israelites just so he can deliver David in that moment. And at just the right moment, David is spared. And we know the reason for that. Look back in verse 14. It kind of explains the reason why Saul couldn't get him. It wasn't just the geography here. Look in verse 14. It says, David remained in the strongholds and wilderness. And it says, and Saul sought him every day. And here's the reason he didn't find him. It says, but God did not give him into his hand. But God did not give him into his hand. It wasn't just a happenstance. It wasn't an accident that Saul didn't get David. It's because God didn't give him into his hands. And God used unexpected means, unexpected provision to spare him. And you know what? Sometimes in our lives, we can experience just these circumstances that just at the right time, Things seem to go the way that um, they, we hoped or we, we were spared. Or, you know what, I stopped at that light when it was just yellow and then all of a sudden this car blew through the red light. Boy, isn't that a funny coincidence. I'm really glad that happened. You know, God uses all of those kinds of unexpected means to spare and to care for his people. Saul couldn't get to David because God had not given David into Saul's hand. God used the Philistines, in a sense, to save David. It reminds me of the story of a guy named Oscar Schindler. Um, back in, I think it was like 93, maybe it was 96, somewhere in there, there was a movie called Schindler's List. And it was a story of Oscar Schindler. He was a German industrialist. He worked in several trades until he became wealthy, and he joined the, the Abwehr, however you pronounce that. It was the German spy organization, the Nazi spy organization he joined, and and then in, in 1939, Oscar Schindler, he joined the Nazi party officially. And it wasn't a ruse. He was actually a Nazi. And he joined this Nazi party officially in 1939. And then through his Nazi connections, he obtains ownership of an enamelware factory in, in, in Krakow, Poland. And he employed about 1,800 workers. Turns out 1,000 were Jews. But something happened. Somehow, God used this unexpected man, this this Nazi spy, Nazi party official, he turned his heart. And he had sympathy on about a thousand of the people who worked in his factory of 1800. And, 
And when they went to take the people of Krakow off to the prison camps and then to the gas chambers, what he would do is he would take this, he would rotate those thousand people and he would, he would shuffle them through the underground network out of Poland and into safety and he would have a rotating thousand people constantly and the Germans didn't know that it wasn't the same thousand people, the same thousand Jews and so he got protection for them. Really a very unlikely, unexpected person to protect them that God turned his heart. God saved many through unexpected means and in fact, um, this belief that he is the greatest single person to, to rescue Jews on his own initiative in World War II. And he's considered a hero to this day. God saves through unexpected means. Unexpected people. He still does that today. He keeps us on our feet and assures us of his care through, through Jesus, our high priest, who's the word of God incarnate. And his, his, his high priest, he's, he mediates a new and better covenant to us. And he not only gives us a better covenant that's sure, that's lasting, that's stable, that can never be taken away for all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, but he gives us a better covenant, a sure promise that he, because of him we have adoption as sons so that God is, is standing with us. Even though we can't see him, even though things might be dark, we can be assured that God is our Father because of Jesus, the high priest, who brings us the assurance of God's word. And then we have that assurance mediated to us through the care of God's people. That's why we have church. That's why we have small groups in this church. That's why we do life together. That's why we, we say that we want to be gospel-centered not only in our, in our worship, and, but in our community, in our mission. We need, we receive God's care that way. We don't do it perfectly. We fall down. But don't let that make you jaded or disenchanted. Just say, you know what, I'm going to pursue that even more. I'm going to be the person who I need others to be for me. God gives us this assurance. He gives us direction and help. He reveals his word. He sends us his spirit. He assures us of his care. And then he, all these little coincidences. You ever have those things happen to you? Those little small coincidences, those people that help came through. All those things are meant to remind us that our Father, he's standing right beside us all the time, even though it's dark. He's saying, I'm here. It's okay. The lights are going to come on. Hear my voice. I'm actively working amidst the darkness. I'm not blind. I see perfectly. That's how this passage is meant to affect us as we look and see God's assurance for David. We can see God's assurance for us. Amen? Well, let's, let's pray. The band will go ahead and come up. Um, Matt, pick something good. Um, <laughs> Um, We'll pray and then we'll stand and uh, sing together.